Dear migrant children who today worked in a factory or sold candy on the subway instead of going to school or to play, children who gave their time so the kids in this Brooklyn neighborhood where we're in can stuff themselves at snack time with Cheerios and Fruity Loops packed by you. Now we know who you are. Now we know your dreams. Now we know the conditions you live in. As writers and educators, we would like to meet you, whether it is in the letters we type onto our screens and are then printed in our books or in our classrooms and now also in this podcast. We would like one day to hear or read your version of your story, maybe written in this renewed version of English we are constructing together. We also cross the linguistic, political and cultural frontier to live in the empire's belly. We also conduct these works of love, works of love that entail preparing food, cleaning spaces, caring for your loved ones back home, teaching our cultures to local communities and creating new spaces for survival and joy. We are not the first ones. We have a history and we can reappropriate it. But first we need to take it back from those who hold those stories hostage. As we planned this episode dedicated to Gabriela Mistral, a writer who theorized and acted on the transformative role of education, we wondered what she would say about your stories of abuse. What recados would she have sent to her peers? She was born in Chile like us and died long before we were born. But she also lived part of her life not far away from where we speak in New York. Knowing your stories, Mistral would speak about the works of love. She would talk about how it is you, migrant children from Latin America, who give us, migrant writers from Latin America, a position from where to speak and to address Anglo audiences. She would also point out how it is not your responsibility to give us such a position, but how it is us the adults in the room who should provide you with the safest of spaces and experiences from where to speak about grief without hatred. Consider this letter our first act of love to you. This is The Letter, a podcast hosted by yours truly, the writers Monica Ramon Rios and Carlos Lave. Today, we will talk about the intrigue involving the name Gabriela Mistral, one of the greatest Spanish-speaking authors, a renowned figure in Latin America, but often overlooked in English. When she was born in 1887 in Vicuña, in an Andean region in the northern part of Chile, her name was Lucila Godoy Alcayaga. Her first poems were published under different pen names, Alguien, Soledad, Alma, That would be somebody, solitude, soul. Finally, when she won the prestigious Juegos Florales Award, combining the first name of Gabriele D'Annunzio with the last of Frederick Mistral, one Nobel Prize and one famous storyteller, her fate was sealed. Let's not forget that the name she chose marked her somehow to become the first Latin American writer to obtain the Nobel Prize in Literature, in 1945. There is a promise in the name we choose. Here is a poem included in the last volume she published while she was still alive. The first section of her book Lagar is titled Locas Mujeres, Mad Women. La otra, 
or the other woman, is the first poem of that section, and it is precisely about identity. Una en mí maté. Yo no la amaba. Era la flor llameando del cactus de montaña. Era aridez y fuego, nunca se refrescaba. Piedra y cielo tenía, a pies y a espadas. Y no bajaba nunca a buscar ojos de agua. Donde hacía su siesta, las hierbas se enroscaban de aliento de su boca y brasa de su cara. En rápidas resinas se endurecía su habla, por no caer en linda, presa soltada. Doblarse no sabía la planta de montaña, y al costado de ella yo me doblaba. La dejé que muriese robándole mi entraña. Se acabó como el águila, que no es alimentada. Sosegó el aletazo, se dobló, lacia, y me cayó a la mano su pavesa acabada. Por ella todavía me gimen sus hermanas, y las gredas de fuego al pasar me desgarran. Cruzando yo les digo, buscad por las quebradas, y haced con las arcillas otra águila abrazada. Si no podéis, entonces, ¡ay! Olvidadla. Yo la maté. Vosotras también matadla. This is the English version translated by Ursula K. Le Guin. You can also go and look for the version translated by Langston Hughes. I killed a woman in me. I didn't love her. She was the flower flaming from the mountain cactus. She was dryness and fire, nothing could cool her. Stone and sky she had underfoot and around her. Never did she kneel to seek the gaze of water. Where she lay down to rest, she withered the grass, with the heat of her breath, the ember of her face. Her speech hardened quick as pitch, so no soft charm could be released. She couldn't bow the mountain plant, while I beside her bowed and bent. I left her to die, robbing her of my heart. She ended like an eagle starved. Her wings stopped beating, she bowed down spent and her quenched spark dropped in my hand. Her sisters still mourn her, accuse me, and the burning quicklime draws me as I pass. Going by, I tell them, looking the creek beds from their clays make another fire eagle. If you can't, well then, forget her. I killed her, you, too, you kill her. We chose this poem because we see a deep reflection about Mistral's self-image. We also see she reflects upon her personal experience, but we are not interested in such suppositions. Let's leave that to the other critics, and there are lots out there. The formal aspect of the poem is quite pristine. The first stanza of two verses then become ten stanzas of four verses. They are all heptasyllables, or verses with eight syllables, and you immediately see the repetition of the A at the end of every other verse. This transparency has been described by some as simple, Um, intellectually and poetically, I disagree. In fact, the preponderance of the A, the A's and the M's and the N's, or consonantes bilabiales, as we call them in Spanish, in the first stanzas invoke the very act of love between women. That characteristic in the word amaba comes to the fore, feminizing the very act of love. Such a move is similar to the classical poem by San Juan de la Cruz, Amor de Llama Viva, where the A suggests an openness. As in that poem, there is also the presence of fire and burning along um, Mistral's poem. Then there it becomes desertic, lacking water and related to the mouth, to speaking and to speaking out. These are the verses, en rápidas resinas 
se endurecía su habla, Mistral writes. The one who is killed is, well, rather mute, maybe even shy, maybe even auto-censoring herself or at least measuring her speech in a modest kind of femininity. So the, the one that is killed is not a mad woman. Um, and, you know, the, the, the poet prefers mad women's. Um, preferable because it is in killing la otra that writing becomes precious and precise. That is why the speaker describes with pity those who claim for the dead one, as if saying, why would you want her if you have me, the outspoken one, the liberated one, the lover, the lesbian, the poet. The one moment that uh, for me creates a before and after in the poem are these verses. La dejé que muriese, robándole mi entraña. There is one study that finds logical incongruencies in them, but it is just, I don't know, dumb. These are very consistent verses, and if you don't understand it, it is not Mistral's problem, it is yours. Of course, there is something that the speaker and the other share, and they are not superficial things. They, in fact, share la entraña, the gut, or the heart, as Lewin translates. Raquel Olea, who identifies this entraña as the female sexual organs, and thus those organs that give life. This means this references the mother-daughter relationship. That could certainly be, but the poem allows for ambiguity. Entraña also means all those organs in the stomach that are good for animals uh, of prey. In, in the poem, there is an animal reference, that thus proposing a certain kind of womanly ambition that might be um, as close to the human and the spiritual as it is of nature. The speaker becomes a hungry animal that eats its prey. The first stanza describes a landscape similar to where Lucila Godoy lived as a young girl. I am intrigued why she puts quotes on ojos de agua. Is it a quote? Why does she put these quotation marks? Yes, ojos de agua are sometimes referred to those underground water formations that surface with fresh water. But it might need something else. It might be a specific person. It is implied. So we can't be sure if it is a code. And if it is a code, what for? But isn't poetry always a code for something else? Last winter, we drove to 15 Spruce Street in the town of Roslyn Harbor, Long Island, New York, in search of the final home of Gabriela Mistral, the house where the writer who traveled the world finally settled and died. We heard that it is in this place, which she shared with Doris Dana, her New York quotations friend, secretary, or lover, among other titles she's still given, Gabriela Mistral was able to be herself. But what did we find there? We took a picture of the site. We have it here in front of us. It is a regular Long Island suburban landscape, more in the wealthy spectrum at a crossing of narrow streets under two large pitch pines among plenty marsh blazing star bushes on a rock about three feet tall, there is a commemorative plaque made maybe of bronze, copper, but it has this inscription. In this site lived from 1953 to 1957, Gabriela Mistral, Nobel Prize of Literature, educator and diplomat, citizen of the world, 
remarkable writer, brave woman. She dedicated her life and work to defending women's rights and the rights of children living in poverty, those with piececitos de niños, azulados de frío. Below, it is signed by the Consulate General of Chile and the Gabriela Mistral Foundation, dated July 2015. At the top, there is also an engraving of Gabriela Mistral, transposing one of her most famous portraits. She is shown with a beret, a lively smile, not too young, but not too old either, not too grumpy, but not too joyful. Just the moderate, very famous poetess of infancy and nature that every student in Chile is taught since the Pinochet's dictatorship. So what's wrong with this picture? First of all, it is the uneasiness it provoked to be in front of that plague in exactly the middle of nowhere. Yes, people live there, but it is not a place where you can stop and take in the legacy of Mistral. In fact, the commemorative rock or plate is presented as a kind of ruin that can maybe raise the value of real estate, but not preserve the contributions he made to literature and intellectual history. So the first issue that I see is how sad it is that Gabriela Mistral's last abode forgot about her. In fact, you can just pass by the commemorative plague and never even see it. Second, the other problem I see with this picture is the choice. They chose a picture of a young Gabriela Mistral with the iconic beret of Latin American poets. But are there iconic pictures of Gabriela Mistral? I think there are. There is the one where she appears sad at the Nobel Award ceremony and some literary experts have linked that expression to her having just learned about the death of her son, Yin Yin. But then she appears happily shaking the king's and the pope's hands. There are other pictures, particularly the ones that were taken in her Rosling home, where she appears smiling. Those were probably taken by Doris Dana, as Mistral was in fact happy, living with her lover and mostly writing. But the Chilean consulate and the foundation that bears Mistral's name both decided for a conservative version of this great thinker. This image erases the complexities of the person who hosted the meetings of the Sociedad Sáfica, the Sáfic Society in Spain, when she lived there, while and at the same time she was caring about the education of children. The figure who exercised politics as a consul of Chile, but also established lifelong sentimental links with friends and lovers. I don't know, I would have chosen another picture, one where she is working, or one where she is smiling, or one where she salutes the people in Chile when she made those big trips after the Nobel Prize ceremony. I think they all convey the figure of a public intellectual and poet of the people. But there is one more issue with this plague. Not only is it that no one could prevent that a wealthier neighbor demolished Mistral and Dana's one-floor house and instead erected a miniature Gold Coast-era manor. It is about an issue of overcorrection that permeates and fogs the prowess of her work. In this plague, for example, the institutions decided to proofread her famous Pies Azulosos for Pies Azulados. That would be more or less like saying bluish instead of blue-gray fit. It changes her particular speech that is both archaistic and very oral to fit into a more conventional language. 
any writer can tell you about the micropower struggle that happens when an editor decides to change a slightly idiosyncratic word you cherish for a more standard, comprehensive, universal choice. Like the time when in Spain they tried to change my guata in a novel of mine for panza. Let's say belly for stomach. But is Gabriel Mistral here to protest somehow about this fake typo? Maybe she is. The names of Gabriela Mistral open many questions, but they also laid the ground for us, Latines, Latinx, Hispanic, and Latin American writers, to find our own comprehensive, deep, playful, respectful, and inviting identity. We will address these questions in an upcoming episode, when we come back to Mistral and revise how her posthumous work calls for a place of justice in the United States. This ends the first episode of The Letter, a podcast hosted by Monica Ramon Rios and Carlos Lave.